Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. And now, here is your host, the lovely, delightful, insightful, and all-around great gal, Ms. Barbara DeLong. I want to uh, thank Kent Quiethawk for that great introduction. Um, he did add to it just a little bit, but but I guess we have to give him some creative license because he's got a magnificent voice. Welcome, everybody, to Nightlight. I'm so glad you're here tonight. I have a really special guest. His name is Paul uh, Rademacher. And he is the former executive director of the Monroe Institute in Faber, Virginia, known for its pioneering work in the exploration of human consciousness. He became interested in consciousness exploration due to a mystical experience that unfolded during a construction accident in 1980. This profound, life-changing event convinced him to enroll at Princeton Theological Seminary from which he graduated with a Master of Divinity degree in 1985. During his 15-year service as a Presbyterian pastor, he studied extensively in the fields of consciousness and spirituality, seeking to bring together traditional meditation techniques with the contemporary expressions of spiritual exploration. His first book, A Spiritual Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, Travel Tips for the Spiritually Perplexed, was published in 2009. And I have to tell you, it is an amazingly wonderful, enjoyable book to read. It's insightful, inspiring, it's it's educational, and it's it's profoundly um, it is profoundly changing your attitude and your consciousness as you read through it. It is it is an amazing book. Highly recommend you all seek it out and find it. He's currently working on a second project involving time, money, dreaming, and enchantment. Oh, enlightenment. Maybe he should put enchantment in there, too. Anyhow, um, I want to welcome him to the show. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Barbara. I'm so glad to be with you. It's, um, I have to say, your book was, was an absolute treat to read. It, I didn't have to put on hip boots or waders or anything, and 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 I could actually relate to some of your experiences. Um, 
because you know those those that are on a journey towards enlightenment or or expansion or awareness or transformation or transition or whatever you want to call it today um almost everyone has had what you called a a, a mystical experience and it's i find it fascinating that no matter what the material they're talking about if it has to do with consciousness and and connecting and ex- expanding consciousness there is always some sort of mystical experience that is that is at the very bottom of their journey the very it's almost like it's the turnkey it's what it's what takes them on that journey or sets them on that journey and yeah you know, a lot of people can identify it some can't but but I think everyone does have one of those moments, an aha moment, where a light bulb goes on. You want to share with us what yours was? Well, I think early in my life there were a couple of experiences that were uh, most profound for me. Um, One of them was um, when I was in, I think I was about 22 years old, and, and at that time in my life I had sort of a philosophy that said if something scared me it would be a really good idea to do it. And one of the things that scared me at that time was the idea of hitchhiking. You know, you just would never know who was going to pick you up or where you were going to go. And it just terrified me to even think about it, so I knew that I had to do it. And it just so happened that my sister was moving from Ohio to Tucson, Arizona. And she needed some help, so I had volunteered. And I was living in Pennsylvania at the time, and I thought, well, I'll drive out with her. And then uh, I will hitchhike uh, back to Pennsylvania. But I decided since I never had been to California, I would take a detour up through California before I headed back east to Pennsylvania. And <clears throat> along the way, I got—I was picked up by a, um, a, a trucker in this big old semi in the middle of the desert. And, uh, you know, I, I, I got in there, and there's this guy. He's about 300 pounds, and, you know, he's got this big beard and, you know, tobacco juice dripping down, and he's leaning over this steering wheel. And uh, it turns out that he was one of the original uh, members of Hell's Angels. And surprisingly enough, we really hit it off almost right from the start. And and so we're driving down the road, and he's telling me all these stories about biking and fast women and the Altamont Rock concert. And and then we get to Big Sur, California, and uh, he's going in one direction, and I'm going in the other direction. And so he drops me off there, and... As the truck is driving away, I'm just feeling this real loneliness uh, pervading me. As you know, it felt like I was saying goodbye to a dear friend in a way. And in the meantime, as I'm standing there, it's in the evening. The sun is starting to go down, and it gets pretty cold pretty fast when you're that close to the ocean. And so I'm thinking, gee, what's going on here? I'm, you know, I got no visible means of support here. I have no place to stay the night. What am I going to do? I'm getting cold and my dress for this weather. And so I really was starting to get scared. And then all of a sudden, uh, out of nowhere, there was this incredible calm and peace that washed over me. And it seemed as if the world came out to greet me, almost to comfort me and offer me this sense of security like I've never had before. You know, the lights drifting down at a 45-degree angle through these huge redwoods, and the air was just alive in a way that I'd never experienced it before. And it was it was almost as if nature itself had come out to greet me in a way that I could have never 
ever anticipated. And so it was a real lesson to me in that moment, in the moment of greatest vulnerability. I was surrounded in not just with total peace, but complete a complete sense of safety. So it taught me that there's much more to the physical world than, than I had ever been led to believe. And it also uh, told me that there's a sense of communion that can happen with this world that is really uncommon compared to with the way we usually live our lives. So that was that was one of the first two uh, things that happened to me. Second thing that happened to me was when I was about 29 years old. Uh, I my brother and I had a construction company and I we were building this house and I was I was up on the top of this roof and pulling on a board and all of a sudden the board gave way and I found myself careening off the roof and with no time to adjust to the fall whatsoever. And all of a sudden I smashed into this pile of gravel and we had a crane there that was working with this and I missed the base of the crane by about six inches with my head. And um, it was an excruciating pain in my left hip. Well, they took me to the hospital and uh, they even had to move me from one hospital to another and I almost passed out as they moved me. And they got me to the, the second hospital I spent the night there, and, and then the next day they took some x-rays, didn't find anything wrong, and so they put me into physical therapy. I didn't realize it at the time, but I actually had fractured my left hip in the fall. And if you have a fractured hip, the last place you want to be is physical therapy. And the doctor came by after a while, and he said, you know, you don't look like you're doing so well. And I said, you know, I'm really not, Doc. And he said, well, let's take some more x-rays of that hip. And when they put took it in an oblique angle, they did find the fracture took me out of physical therapy and put me into traction. And when the doctor came by to tell me that I was going to be in traction for about a week and off work for about six weeks, I found myself going into this spiral downward of pain and anxiety, pain because the hip was excruciating, and anxiety because this was the busiest time of our construction year and there was absolutely no way I could be off work, and I knew that my brother couldn't possibly handle the business without me. And so here I am going almost literally into this spiral downward. I can almost feel it. And as I'm going down, I'm going deeper and deeper into this spiral. And all of a sudden, it was like I hit something and then broke through into a completely different reality. And in that other reality, the, the pain completely vanished. The anxiety w- went away entirely. And I found myself engulfed in this total and complete peace in which I knew that there were absolutely no accidents whatsoever. And at one point in this experience, I then found myself standing in front of a being of light, and we're conversing about my life and its direction, but we aren't using words. It's all telepathic communication. And when I came out of that experience, um, I was completely awed because I, I just didn't even know that anything like this was possible. It's one thing to have the world come out and greet you in the physical manner. It's an entirely different thing to move into a completely different world. And yes. um, it was so awe-inspiring, it it pretty much set the course of my life from that point on. Well, I, I know that you did leave the construction company and, and you did go to seminary and, and um, become a pastor. And that's, that's, you know, for some, 
and and amazing well for for anybody it's an amazing experience and yet you came to a point there where it wasn't enough <laughs> yeah it seemed, it was kind of a cruel joke in in a lot of ways because the thing that sent me into the ministry was this these mystical experiences and at that mm-hmm. time theology was the only language i had for that i simply wasn't acquainted with any other way of looking at it and because I had grown up in the Presbyterian tradition, it seemed like this might be an avenue, uh, some way in which I might be able to reconnect with this, these mystical experiences. So I, you know, I went through three years of seminary at Princeton Theological Seminary and graduated with a Master of Divinity degree and started 15 years of, of in the ministry. And, uh, but uh, the thing that became very clear to me was that it was very difficult to reconnect with those experiences through the ministry and it seemed very often that it was kind of the last thing that the people in the Presbyterian church wanted to to talk about you know the Presbyterian church is kind of known as the frozen chosen and so you know (laughs) they're very they're very much into decency and order and everything And, and yet here I am coming at this thing from a completely chaotic perspective that I I didn't have any idea how to approach it, what to do with it. I just knew it was the most important driving force of my life. So I found myself having to go in other directions, even while I was in the ministry. I would go to all kinds of conferences and workshops and seminars that I would never tell any of my parishioners about. Well, you know, I think that that it's it's fascinating to me that first of all people who go into the ministry truly i believe have a calling of some sort they have a a sense of service of wanting to help people and and they don't realize until they get into it that it's more of a job than it is of being of service it's 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 yeah. absolutely so much paperwork so much dealing with budgets and money and all sorts of other things. And, and the, the, the ministry um, is yeah, very familiar with Presbyterianism, by the way. Um, the ministry uh, is, is, is such, um, it, it's a corporate entity, and, and therefore you have to deal with it that way. And it doesn't have anything to do with kindness and love and, and compassion. It has to do with money and budget and economy. And well, it, in, in my case, in my case, that 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 was true to some extent. I have to say that the two churches I served, um, I loved the people. I mean, mm-hmm. they were just they were just amazing people in so many ways, and they treated me uh, really wonderfully. But like you say, there, it's all that other stuff that that eats up your time. And for me, it was um, even though I loved the people, I didn't really love the ministry. And also, there was always this undercurrent of how do I get back to those worlds that that turned me upside down and that, to me, were of ultimate value. And and that was a real struggle for for many many years. And so it took a, quite a long time to even begin to have a sense of what direction to go with that. Well, yeah, I can certainly. I taught special education for twenty five years, and mm-hmm. I loved the children. I hated 
the administration and, right. and often right. the parents, you know, I have, but the, <laughs> the children were fabulous and, and working with those kids, you, you, you do get into such a joyful, joyous, energetic. And, and yet when you, when you have to fill out paperwork for the state and you have to make sure that anytime a state representative comes, you're following the IEPs for the kids, it takes away the joy of it. So yeah, after 25 years, I left teaching as well. So, so what, what I find fascinating, <clears throat> fascinating with your story is that I mean, it, it, it just seems like you, you, you think you know where you need to go and you go there and, and you're blissful for a little while and then, nah, that's a blissful anymore. There's got to be something else out there and you, you're in that, that struggle of where do I go from here and then suddenly a door opens. It's, right. it's, it's in many ways, I call it cosmically ordained. And I think that, you know, your story is, is, is an amazing story. And, and in retrospect, you're easy, it's easy to kind of see the different patterns you went through. But how do you explain this kind of journey to someone who is, is deeply wanting to be of service, to serve, to be um, enlightened, to be on that spiritual pathway, to, to answer that call that they hear within them? And they don't know how to answer it. it it's kind of like it's it, the phone's ringing and they don't know where it is. Yeah, that, you know that that's a that's a tough one because everybody's situation is different, and mm-hmm. uh, everybody's calling is unique. So it's 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 tough to give blanket advice. I think in my case, it was mostly that I was just so darn curious that I I, I could never be satisfied with the answers that other people were giving me. For me, it was it was not about talking or theology or speculation. It it was the experience, the direct experience that I was always after. And if I couldn't find a way toward that, I, I oftentimes you know I'd go through a, a period of depression or feeling lost. Um, even though, like as I say, I was treated wonderfully in the ministry and I had good jobs. You know this this other thing was missing. So I really I guess maybe there was a part of me that just could not be satisfied until I came to that to find that thing that I was looking for. And I guess in my case I was fortunate because I fortunate or cursed, I don't know which, that I had those early experiences in my life that at least gave me some kind of an outline or blueprint of what it was that I was looking for. And so yeah. uh uh that was something that always drove me, but I also think that it didn't have a lot to do with me either. I think that in many cases, uh, there were there were actors that were pulling strings behind the scenes that um, I could only see in retrospect. And while I was going through them, it just seemed chaotic and and being lost. But over time, I began to see that there was a sort of a a dance or a, a, an organization or a genius that was working behind the scenes that um, had it been up, left up to me, I really would have screwed it up. But fortunately, <laughs> this greater genius kind of took over where I was, in all the places where I was completely inept. Well, I, I think it's fascinating. I mean, first of all, your your years in the ministry certainly um, gave you a better perspective as to what you were looking for, because 
because you understood to a greater degree, um, for instance, you know, Jesus having the mystical experiences and sharing them with the disciples and then the disciples having to share them with someone else and that, that, that it wasn't that, that people had to just believe they hadn't experienced that mystical experience. So um, it, 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 I think your background gave you such a, such a, a better perspective as to what the Bible is actually saying. Well, understand, though, that that perspective was very late in coming. I mean, that was almost, almost after I left the ministry that it began to make a bit more sense to me. But I always had this sneaking suspicion, even when I was in seminary, that, you know, in seminary, we would have chapel every day, but I just, after a while, I couldn't go to chapel because it, it wasn't touching the thing that I'd gone into the ministry in the, for in the first place, which it didn't get me to the mystical experience. And um, even in seminary, I had this sense that that the religious traditions have really gotten kind of screwed up because they've lost touch with that um, inspiration of the original mystical encounter you know i think it doesn't matter what religion or even tradition that you're looking at most often there is like you say someone uh, who has transcended the limits of ordinary reality and had an encounter of some kind and um, joseph um, campbell talks about this in his book a hero of a thousand faces um, where he talks about the the hero's journey as being one where he, the normal dimensions of life are left behind and the this person is suddenly thrust into a, what appears to be an alien world and learn that person learns something in that alien alien world and then is faced with the task of coming back and trying to explain that to people who haven't had the experience and so right away there's a breakdown there uh, yeah that that person very often ends up maybe willfully or not unconsciously creating a tradition but and and that person wants to bring his follower his or her followers into the direct experience but doesn't really know how to do that and so the followers like as you say are are left with the words about the experience rather than the direct experience itself and so then what happens is the people fall in the followers fall in love with the words and they think that the words are what are important whether it be the Bible or the Torah or you name it, but they don't realize that it isn't the words that are important. It's it's the it's the experience that is really life changing, and and I, the more I began to realize that, starting in seminaries and I as I moved through the ministry, the more I began to realize that what one of the things I wanted to do in this book was to reinterpret the um, the Judeo at least a Judeo Christian tradition in terms of this uh, mystical uh, awareness. So that was sort of the well, driving force behind it. Well, I, I, your book was fabulous. I mean, I, Thank you. You know, it's definitely on my list of books. I, do, I tell people, you know, read it. It gives you an idea. And, it, and you don't have to replicate it all, but it gives you an idea as to someone's journey and, you know, kind of gives you an understanding that, that it's not, you know, once you see the light bulb, that doesn't mean that it's a straight pathway to wherever you're going. It, it just means that, you know, it, it, it's lit up to the next door, you know? It's, that's exactly <laughs> and, right. 
And and uh, I, I, I there are so many people that that you use the term enlightenment often, and and I, I think it's it's important for people to understand that that enlightenment isn't just getting that aha moment when you have cosmic consciousness and you're able to walk on water. It's it's not that. Yeah, there's a whole discussion we can get into maybe later in our in the show. But uh, there's a person who is doing, I think, extraordinary work in this whole uh, field of uh, what a lot of people call enlightenment. But it actually goes by many names. You could call it Christ consciousness, Nirvana, Samadhi. You know, um, enlightenment. There there are many different terms depending on the on the tradition that it comes from. Um, there's a guy by the name of Dr. Jeffrey Martin who has spent a, a good portion of his life interviewing people who have reached some form of those different words. And he's gone all over the world and sat for hours and hours and hours and, and researched what, what they're about. And he's come away with this marvelous study and out of this uh, a tremendous course that uh, called the Finder's Course that he's developed and one of the things that, that he found is that these different terms that we use for this state of awareness um, actually fall on a continuum. And so it, wherever you are on that continuum, they have different characteristics. And one of the, one of the really profound characteristics is that when you move into this state of awareness, um, what happens is, one of the markers is is that you go it, the interior world goes completely silent, and um, that's just one of the things that he's been able to bring to the fore. Is he puts descriptors around this, and then through his course, he's also been able to help ordinary people to start to achieve what are considered ordinarily considered to be pretty extraordinary um, uh, states of awareness. So he's making something that's that's quite. Uh, amazing available to ordinary people i just wanted to bring that up because so often we talk about and use the word enlightenment and there's a lot of disagreement as to what that might mean depending on who you talk to but through his work he's actually been able to put uh put lay out because of his research very specific uh, markers on that path which i think is a tremendous contribution to this whole this whole field Oh gosh, yeah. I know that that so many people, so many more today than ever before, and I've been in the field for well, I'll, I'll admit to fifty years, and 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 in that time frame, I I have heard labels, you know, thrown in and then thrown out, and and different, you know names for different, you know, I'm a light worker, I'm a light bearer, I'm a shaman, I'm a this, I'm a that. And and when it comes to uh, a spiritual pathway or or enlightenment, when when they sit down and they say, you know, I need I need help in, you know, discuss, you know, what what is my next step and stuff like that. And and when you say to them, you have to go within. It's all within. You have the map inside. You brought the map with you. And and it's your journey, so it's unique unto you. And how you open those doors is unique unto you. And how you 
meditate, how you shut out the real world. It's all unique unto you. There's no textbook for this. It's your journey. And, and so many times it frustrates people because they really want to know, how do I do it and when do I get there? <laughs> yeah, well, I think one of the things that, that the, the, the journey is designed to do is, is to break apart that which you think you already know about yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and that is not an easy journey to, to take because, uh, you know, it, it puts you in a very vulnerable position many times over. And so um, as much as we would like the, the spiritual journey to be this, this wonderful, blissful path, um, very often it, it, we end up being confronted uh, at the places where we least want to uh, be confronted and uh, that that's not easy. And so that's one part of it. The other part of it is sheer grace. You know, you just you just end up realizing that you're not controlling anything anyway. And yeah. and so, so you might as well just give up and enjoy the 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 journey. You know, stop digging in your heels. Start stop grabbing for anything that you can. Just let go, and allow larger forces to to take over. Um, the, one, yeah, of the is, that, one of the things yeah, that Jeffrey Martin talks about is it also is, is that as you move along, you begin to give up the idea of agency. Agency mm-hmm. meaning meaning that I'm in control, and that you really begin to um, understand that that whole idea is pretty ridiculous. And so, the quicker you can get to that point, the better off you are. I think. Well, yeah, you, your ego has a. You usually arm wrestles you on many, many areas in that particular aspect. Um, I have found that <clears throat> I have found that that the 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 experience of being on a pathway or in a journey towards this 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 connection inside of yourself it does take you through times in which, using the biblical term, you go through the dark night of the soul. And and it is it, those are not pleasant times, but I I really think it's important for people to hear and hear it really loudly. There are also times of extraordinary bliss. Yes, yes. And, I and mean, those are, the, those are the things that sustain you through the dark night. Oh yeah. Um, right. I mean, I I I can remember standing on my deck looking out over the wetlands onto the pond and, and seeing millions and millions of fireflies. And for a breath or two, I was one of them. And it was the most magical moment that I had experienced in, in a very long time. And it was, it was like time stood still and maybe it did. Um, But but you know you do get those moments when you are one with the universe. Yes. And that's right. that is that is something it's worth going through dark night of the soul every day for. Mm. Well, maybe I don't know, not every day. day. I, maybe yeah, maybe yeah, every, every day. <laughs> yeah, I may have, that may have been extreme. But <laughs> depends on how good the bliss is though, really. Yeah, that's um, right. That's right. Yeah. But but it's it's really I I think people have to understand that this is not a four-lane highway. I mean, it is at times, but but for the most times, you're you're making your own path because it's your journey, and um, 
and I don't think you can really go off the path. I don't think it's possible. You know, you can do side trips, but um, you usually end up right back on the same pathway. It's it's kind of like you can take as long as you like, but you're going to get there eventually. You know, a very dear friend of mine, uh, Skip Atwater, who worked with me at the Monroe Institute, uh, uh, very wise man, and he always used to tell me, you can't not be on the right path. And I, I've always taken that to heart and, and even in the dark times tried to remember that that, that is infinitely true, that uh, even though the small brain doesn't seem to be able to make sense of what's going on, there's a larger aspect of our being that is very much in tune with what's going on and can see that it's leading some, somewhere that's very powerful and, and wondrous. Oh, yeah, and, you know, there's... In, in retrospect, always, um, you can you can see the, yeah, I learned this and I learned this and I had this aha moment. And so maybe it wasn't wasted time after all. And, and it's, it's never wasted time. That's what's so incredible. Um, you, 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 did, you did go to the Monroe Institute. And you want to, for those who don't know what, what it is, you want to explain exactly what it sort of does? Sure. Uh, probably the best thing to do is kind of back up a little bit and talk about uh, the Monroe Institute, how it came into be, and Robert Monroe's own journey. But <clears throat> one time, just to tie back to where I've been, my wife after my wife and I had been in had been in the ministry for a couple of years, and we were on vacation up in Toronto. Walked into a store that was and possibly still is called the world's biggest bookstore. Now, this was a time before um, Barnes & Noble. And, and so we walked in, and sh- sure enough, as far as the eye could see, there were, I mean, there were millions of books. It was like this wonderful thing because I loved reading. Mm-hmm. And we were there for, I don't know, maybe five minutes. I walked by this table, and this one book just about jumped off the table and, and into my hand. And it was Robert Monroe's second book called Far Journeys. And in this uh, book, he's talking about his own experience of going out of body. Now, this started happening to him back in the 1950s. At that time, he was a very prolific radio producer and writer. I think in, at one point he was working on something like 14 different radio shows in the, in the span of one week. One of the most famous that he worked on was a show called The Shadow. And uh, I don't know if you have listeners who are old enough to know about that, but that was a very popular radio show for many years. I remember it. Do you really? (laughs) Good for you. Who knows? The Shadow knows. Exactly, exactly. So anyway, um, when he was, uh, I think it was maybe the mid-50s or whatever, one night he goes to bed and he's laying in bed. And all of a sudden, he realizes that somehow he's gotten out of bed and he's laying on the floor. It's you know, it's flat and it's hard. He was in a soft, warm bed before. Now he's against this um, hard surface and it's cold. He can't. And to make it even more confusing, it seemed like there was this fountain that was coming up out of the floor. That's just crazy. It didn't make any sense at all. And all of a sudden, he got himself turned around and he realized what was happening. He was actually bouncing against the ceiling of his bedroom. And the thing that looked like a fountain was actually the chandelier hanging down from the ceiling. Mm-hmm. From that vantage point, he looked down, 
and he could see his wife in bed with this other man, but the closer he looked, the more he realized the other man was his own body. And so he was terrified, swam down through the air, jumped back into his body, sat up, and he was convinced that this was the beginning of the death process. <laughs> but the problem was it kept happening to him over and over and over again, and eventually he got really curious about it. And he, because he was involved in radio and he was familiar with sound, he began to wonder if he could m make uh, sound waves that would help him to control this out-of-body experience. By the way, he was the, the one who termed the, uh, the phrase out-of-body experience. And so uh, uh, his first book was called Journeys Out of the Body. The second book was called Far Journeys. That was the one I read first. And then third book he wrote was called Ultimate Journey. Um, so he was messing around with these sound waves and began to find out that he could uh, help people to move into this state that he called mind awake, body asleep. Normally when we are awake, you know, we are firmly aware of our body and we f almost feel like our body is us. We identify almost thoroughly with the body. When we go mm -hmm. to sleep, we leave our our bodies and go into dream worlds, and we forget that we have a body lying in the bed. But in this mind-awake, body-asleep state, he helped people to maintain their waking consciousness as they would move into the uh, sleep states or states of unconscious or dream states or visionary states. So uh, it was a very useful thing, and eventually over time he began to discover other states of awareness he called these uh, different states of awareness. He just gave them numbers in order to keep them from having any um, attachment or bias at, uh, uh, associated with them. So the first state he discovered was focus 10, which is the mind awake, body asleep state. Then focus 12, which is the state of expanded awareness. And then focus 15, which is the state of uh, no time and focus 21, which is the state of um, the bridge state between physical reality and non-physical experience. So uh, these were discovered over uh, many years of, of, of experimentation. If you went to visit Bob Monroe's house, you know, you wouldn't stand around having cocktails. Before you know it, he'd be taking you down a hallway, shoving you into a dark room, laying you down in bed, putting headphones on and slamming the door and <laughs> testing different signals out on you. He did this for thousands of people. So eventually he came up with this protocol that seemed to work pretty well. And when you go to the Monroe Institute, those states that I described, the focus 10, 12, 15, and 21, are the destination points that you get introduced as you're there for that first week. And um, so, you know, when I found Bob Monroe's book, <laughs> I could hardly believe it. I mean, I couldn't believe it. Here was a guy who was talking about some of my experiences, but he wasn't using theology. He wasn't speculating about it. He wasn't philosophizing about it. He was just telling about his own experience in a very matter-of-fact way. And I was just absolutely bowled over. And, and I read it cover to cover. I, I just couldn't put the thing down. And when I got to the back end of the book, it talked about this place called the Monroe Institute and where you could actually go to learn how to do some of this stuff. And I thought, oh, man, if only I could go there, and wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be wonderful? And the second thought right after it was, wouldn't it be amazing to work at a place like that? Mm -hmm. Knowing that neither one of those was ever going to happen, 
because I was still a Presbyterian minister in a mainline church with the frozen chosen, everything decently in order. And, and, you know, people generally want their pastors to be pretty normal. And this was anything but normal going to the Monroe Institute. But about 11 years after I read the book, I, uh, a friend of mine actually paid my way to go to the Monroe Institute. And when I did, the world that I experienced when I fell off the roof and when I went on that hitchhiking trip, those worlds came back to me in in spades. It was just like uh, manna from heaven. You know, I was I was literally dying inside, uh, somehow wanting to ta- uh, to reconnect with those worlds. And uh, it took me so long, but eventually I was able to do it when I went to the Monroe Institute. It's uh, it, it's in a, from what I understand, I've not. I've not actually been myself, but I've spoken to a number of people who have, and it, it's it's a very similar experience. It's a matter of um, your consciousness expands so that there there really there isn't any earth or whatever you're in the universe, and it it appears that it's 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 an amazing experience. I I've done some out of body work, but not not to that intensity, and it is it is a profound experience because it changes your perception of life forever yes and, and it changes your perception of what it means to be human and having this experience in, in this earthly world um, and I, I should add though that uh, even though the Monroe Institute is most often associated with the out of body experience because of Robert Monroe's writings and his books. Uh, the truth is, is that when you go there, there are a variety of different kinds of experiences that you can have, and it will be as unique as to each person as and different as there are are people there. So, um, what what we found was that the people who had the best experiences were the people who went with the least expectations, and the people who were who allowed themselves to be surprised uh, rather than going with a preconceived idea, uh, oh, I'm just going to have an out-of-body experience and nothing else. And those are the people who generally are most disappointed. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, y- your expectations can, can often lead you in, in down a road that's not appropriate. Right. Um, right. But but I, I have found that that... You're talking, I believe, about the alpha theta state, and then going deeper into into that particular level of consciousness. I think. Well, <laughs> I think I think the the thinking at the institute began to change over the years, and and so it um, the each um, experience that you have. By the way, I should also describe what happens there to. So the, what I'm going to say next makes a little bit more sense. Okay. Uh, each each group uh, that goes through, normally there are around 24 people who go uh, to to a class there. You um, the same bed that you listen to uh, the exercises in through headphones is also the same bed that you sleep in. And this bed has four walls around it and a little cubby hole that you crawl through, and that's just designed to be sort of a mini sensory deprivation chamber that just helps you to focus inward rather than be dis- being distracted by external sounds. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, the exercises um, are played for everybody. Everybody's listening to the same exercise. But uh, after the exercise, people come together as a group. And if you have questions or if you want to talk about what happened to you, you know, you're welcome to do that. And it's what's really interesting is that, that even though everybody's listening to the same exercise, the experiences that are that arise out of that are are deeply tailored to each individual. It's not anything that's done in, intentionally by the institute. It's just done by each person's uh, greater genius. I think that is actually leading that that whole um, thing that that unfolds there. And you find that over the week, that uh, things will start to connect over the week. Something that you encounter early in the week will then sometimes be revisited later on and it will grow in depth and understanding and unfold in, in ways that you couldn't orchestrate if you tried. And so that's why uh, the, I said before, the people who have the least uh, expectations are the ones who are most awed by the wonder of it all. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. So, so you know, because everybody's different, everybody is going to experience a consciousness, a consciousness level that is attuned to their level of awareness of reality and and whatever. So, so that so, does our cultural and um, socioeconomic um, programming have anything to do with the the consciousness that we go in that you go into once you are in that state? Yeah, I think that's one of the things that that. Um, it takes a little while to move beyond that to some extent. One of the nice things about going to the Monroe Institute, and I, I, I sort of sound like I'm doing commercial for them. I don't work there anymore, <laughs> and I, I don't get uh, kickbacks for this, but I still have tremendous appreciation for what they do, and so that's why I can speak so enthusiastically about it. But one of the things that happens is when you are able to go there for a week, you're actually stepping outside of your normal life. You know, you don't have to worry about where your next meal is coming from because that's all provided for you. You don't have to worry about what you're going to wear because mostly you're in kind of in pajama-like things to begin with. You don't have to worry about what to do next because there's always you're just being guided from one place to another. Um, there are no demands on your time. Uh, you put your computer away, even put your watches away, and so you can enter into a different, different experience of time. And so what happens, I think, is that those layers of enculturation that you talk about begin slowly to melt away as you move through the week to the point where at at the end of the week um, so much stress has been has been lifted and so much relaxation has happened that seriously, I'm not kidding this, uh, people can look 20 years younger at the end of that week than when they come in simply because it's such a, uh, an experience of movement away from all those crushing demands of our contemporary life. And, and our culture is really not very kind to us in many ways. And I think primarily one of the ways that it, that it beats us up is that we live in a culture that simply does not recognize anything beyond the physical body. And so issues of soul and spirit we pretend as if they simply do not exist, and we pretend that everything that we are can is is encapsulated in the body, and the only thing we need to do is to maintain that physical body, and everything's going to be fine, but it, it isn't. 
And so there's this deep, almost grievous uh, hurt that people carry around inside of them that they can't even name because something is missing and yet that our culture simply does not acknowledge. And so when you are able to move out of that culture and then into a place where that is acknowledged, it is like um, a gift from heaven. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, do you do you foresee it? I mean, it, it, to me, it it appears that people's perception of of spirit and consciousness and everything is is more and more in in everyday conversation. I mean, I, I think people are becoming more aware that there is more to us than a physical body. And well, you know, I don't not, know. Not, I'm, I'm not. So- I, maybe in the circles you run in. <laughs> I think I think it sort of has a lot to do with the company you keep. You know, when I look around the world, I, I'm not so sure. I, I I don't know the answer to that question. Well, you know, I look at the news too, and I wonder just you know if they are from another planet. But but I, I think people when I started teaching, if I had talked about spirituality and stuff like that, I could have lost my job. Um, When I left teaching, it was, you know, something you could talk about. Now, I I don't go to cocktail parties and stuff like that, so I can't tell if, if in that, you know, if in singles bars and stuff like that, if that's the case. I do find that I am finding more and more people that open conversations with me that 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 are more comfortable with talking about their spirit and their 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 life journey and and you know how can I open the door to greater this and greater that so that um there there let, let me put it this way there is a a larger part of the population than there was fifty years ago that is that is moving in the direction of understanding consciousness and spirit and, and the balance between the physical and the spiritual realities. I, I would agree with that. I, I think that, I think that it's certainly become much, uh, like, as you say, a much greater part of the public conversation. Um, yeah, no doubt about that. You know, it, that, it that's just, where, that's where you look at somebody like Robert Monroe, who was having this stuff happen to him in the 1950s, when nobody was talking about this. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of pioneers out there that we owe a, a great debt of gratitude to for people who have braved those uh, the taboos of their time to help us all to maybe move into a different space. Yes, and many of them were thrown into insane asylums um, mm-hmm. or burned at the stake. I mean, Absolutely. It's, it, it's, it's, I think what is fascinating to me is that, that these levels of consciousness, these these levels of awareness have been available to all of us since the beginning of time. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of how do we how do we go into ourselves and and gain access to those qualities. That's the that's the key question for sure. Yeah. And and you know this Monroe Institute provides one one way, but but it's not the only way, and and it's right. a matter of of again, everyone is so unique. Everyone's way of unlocking these doorways, these passages, to to 
the majesty that is carried within in our DNA is just is profound. Right. And 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 you know the, your journey was one way, and you know you're probably still walking along it. Um, you did leave the Monroe Institute, mm-hmm. and I did, and you did teach some of their techniques outside of the institute. Uh, no, I didn't do that. Actually, um, well, let me let me clarify what that means. Is that when I, when I was still in the ministry before I left the ministry. Uh, I, I I was I had gone to the Monroe Institute as a student and taken I don't know maybe three different classes, mm-hmm. and I began to sense that there was some connection to uh, the tradition, uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition, and so I, I uh, with great fear and trepidation, I decided <laughs> to offer a class to a very select group in the church that I could somewhat trust, um, having no idea whether any of this was going to work at all. And um, so I went on a re- took a group on a retreat that I had been working with. You know, we'd done meditation together and, and actually had done another workshop with them before. So they were somewhat softened up, I guess you could say. And so uh, we, we uh, rented a, a space at the Montreat uh, Center, which is in um, western North Carolina, up around Asheville. And um, we took air mattresses. And I, re- I remember, these are, these are Presbyterians, you know. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and, and so we laid these mattresses out. We darkened the room with plastic. And I had this jury-rigged sound system that they could put headphones on and listen to these different experiences. And I want to tell you it was the most one of the most terrifying things I've ever done in my life because I had you know had no idea my here the, here are these presbyterians with headphones on laying on, down on these air mattresses and they're chanting and it was like what have I done I'm going to lose my job for sure here but mm-hmm. it, along the way I would sort of tie what we were doing back to um some things that happened in the Bible, just to show them that there was some rationale and there was some grounding for this. And it was amazing the response that I got. was, uh, You know, people were saying things like, you know, I've been looking for this all my life and, and, you know, this has changed who I am. And it was kind of right then that I realized that that, uh, the work that the Monroe Institute was doing was really important. And... um, that it wasn't something that could just change my life, but it had the potential to make an impact on many different lives. And so um, the good news is is that it was very uh, – the workshop and the second workshop that I did for uh, a second group in the church were both very successful. The bad news is it, it even created a greater longing for me to want to get into this work more directly. I just felt like the ministry was – the blocking me from exactly the direction I needed to go. And so Mm -hmm. in the year 2000, I left the ministry uh, because I wanted to write. And and the book, The Spiritual Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, was an outgrowth of of that longing to write. And for me, it was was, uh, an exercise that was just tinged in joy at every step, in every step along the editing process and and on and 
so th- this book is actually a labor of love, I can tell you that. So um, listen, any any man who refers to his two sons as dirt one and dirt two. <laughs> um, That's right. <laughs> and my I fell in love dirt, with dirt them. at three. Yeah, yeah and dirt at three, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that and the dog, I fell in love with all of them. Um uh. So 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 you you wrote you left to to write and yes. and and out of out of all of this has evolved this this lovely book and your new project which is time money dreaming and enlightenment and correct somehow you are putting them all together and it it looks yes. it looks intriguing yeah yeah um I do want to just kind of back up a little bit and com- complete the story about leaving the church. Um, oh, sure. You know, I, I, when I left the church, I didn't I know exactly what I was going to do. I decided I'd just go back and create a small constru- construction company. But two, about two months after I walked, walked out of the jur- door of the church, I got a call from the Monroe Institute asking me if I wanted to become a residential facilitator there on campus. And I thought, yeah. Uh, that that's that's exactly what I want to do. That would be great. And as soon as those words were out of my mouth, I remembered back when I first read Robert Monroe's book. And at the end, I got to the end of it and said, wouldn't it be amazing to go to a place like that? And the second one was, wouldn't it be amazing to work at a place like that? Almost as if my future self had trotted back in time and whispered in my ear about what my future was going to be, uh-huh. which is really significant, as hopefully we'll see as we move further in this conversation. And then eventually, you know, I was there for a few years, and then um, in 2007 I became the executive director of the Monroe Institute. But in 2011, other, other voices were calling me in new directions, <laughs> and so I left that. And that's that's how now we get up to where your question uh, put us. So um, one of the things that when I was at the Monroe Institute and and in the different, I worked in the nonprofit uh, world for a long time. The Monroe Institute, by the way, is a nonprofit. The churches that I served were nonprofits. Um, every each of those institutions have wonderful people, just amazing, dedicated open-hearted, just great people. And they all had these great missions, and and um, there was a, a great vision behind them. But one of the things I noticed that really surprised me was that no matter how good the organization, no matter how great the mission, no matter how wonderful the people, it wasn't long before uh, ego started winding its way into the mix, you know, and people started taking out their territories and conflicts would emerge and this was really something that was 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 bothering me a lot because you know when you're in an executive director role you know you you're responsible for the organization and and for the people within it and the relationships etc and i was having trouble understanding why this could be the case. You know, I love these people, and so often times I'd find myself in the middle of this battle between two people that I genuinely loved, and there wasn't much I could do to reconcile anything. And to make matters worse, you know, I had my biases, and, and I had my hot spots too, you know, so what was wrong with me? <laughs> so, um, 
One day I was shortly before I left the Monroe Institute, I was walking on the beach and thinking about this issue. And I kind of threw it out as a question to the universe, you know, why is it that this happens? Um, never thinking, of course, that the universe might answer back. You know, yeah. you'd have to be you'd have to be crazy to think that, right? <laughs> well, anyway, no sooner was did the thought go out of my mind than these words came back to me. And, and when this happens, as this happened several times in my life, the words the, it's always very terse, very succinct, no elaboration. But the words that came back to me were four words that said, "Go to your heart." Okay, all right, well. Go to your heart. That's that's pretty trite, um, you know. That's mm-hmm. pretty generic. But I knew from experience that when this voice speaks to me, it, it is it is sort of the initiation into the, the next phase of my being and my work. I recognize the voice. Okay. So, so uh, I knew that it, uh, even though it sounded trite, there was a there's there there was going to be a whole lot more behind that than I could ever begin to imagine. So uh, I took it seriously, not having any idea what to do about it. But um, that night I went to bed, and I, before I fell asleep at night, I just moved into a deeply relaxed state, and I and I all I did was to shift my awareness from my brain down to my heart center. And when that happened, uh, several things uh, began to unfold pretty quickly, as as I would do this after many nights, several nights, I should say. One of the things that happened was that I noticed that my mind became much quieter uh, throughout most of my life because I have been brain-centered. Uh, my there were always these thoughts and reflections, critiques, monologues, stream of consciousness, words, words, words going through my brain. But when I shifted my awareness intentionally to the heart center, that seemed to fall away. And I moved into a silence that was uh, pretty stunning. Another thing that happened was that I actually became happy. I think throughout a good portion of my life, because of this struggle between wanting to explore the spiritual world and, and ha- still having to make a living, you know, there was this tension, and that created, I think, for me, a lot of inner trauma and turmoil and, and drama and depression. But when I moved my attention to the heart, suddenly I began to get happy, so much so that I think that people started looking at me kind of crazy because, I, you know, I'd walk around with a smile on my face and and for no reason whatsoever. And, you know, that's the mark of insanity. <laughs> so, or the third thing, Yeah. The third, third thing that happened was that I began to notice that my dream world opened up in spades. The dreams became vivid. Uh, they became powerful. Almost as if I was uh, connecting my waking world with my dream world in ways that I had never done before. So I began to craft this space before I would go to bed at night and also before I would get out of bed in the morning that I began to call uh, the twilight awareness. It's the in-between state. Normally when we fall asleep at night, 
you know, we're up in our brain and we're thinking, 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 ruminating, remembering, anticipating, and all of a sudden we flip over into sleep. And there's not much of a transition point there. Right. In the morning, we wake up, the alarm goes off, and all of a sudden we're ripped out of the dream world into waking consciousness. Again, there's not much of a transition point. So I began to realize that, that by going into the heart and into this twilight awareness, moving first into deeply relaxation, and then into the heart, that I was creating a link and a, and a transition point between these two, uh, between waking consciousness and sleep consciousness. And you know, it, it kind of makes sense in a way, because unlike the brain that that loves to slice and dice, categorize, name, and 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 put gradients on everything and to judge everything, it's and it's all about words. The silence of the heart is about relationships and forming links. And so it it only stands to reason that it, when you move into the heart, that one of the things you might experience is this link between the waking world and the sleep world. So that's why I think that the dream world began to um, emerge so powerfully because I was intentionally creating a space for it by moving into the heart before I fell asleep. And then in the morning when I would wake up, I could actually go back into the heart and actually go back into the dream itself with my waking mind and begin to interact with it in in new ways. So that um, what I began to realize was that what was happening was that uh, it wasn't so much about interpreting the dream, which is which the brain loves. The brain loves words and interpretations and right. because it likes to control things. It was much more about creating a relationship with the dream and even the dream figures that emerged from the dream. And and from that point on, things really began to shift for me in, in dramatic ways. So that's just the beginning part. Wow. How did you... Um, so you have created this, this workshop, I believe? Uh, well, I'm not sure that I created it. I think it was given to me... Um, <laughs> Again, you know, if if they put me in charge, it's going to be really messed up. But, you know, if if I can step to the side and just let the powers that be have things unfold, it works out so much better. I do understand that totally. Um, and, and, And sending your ego out to the movies and allowing... I like that phrase. Oh, it's 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 how I work. It's usually it's almost it's almost a conscious saying, "All right, I'm going to be working on this spiritual stuff. I don't need to rationalize. I just want to feel. So so go away." And it does. Um, yeah. It 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 works beautifully. It it's kind of like this isn't this isn't of me. It's through me. So it's not about my my life or my experiences or anything. It may be flavored slightly by by the residue of those things. But but you know when you when you really take your ego out of things, you you tend to bring forth beautiful stuff. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think I, I think it, for me it's like you know one of the one of the dreams that I had was uh, um, this. In the dream, I was part a part of the celestial choir, 
and uh, it was it was so profound because I'm part of this larger group that is singing t- in one direction towards something. What I don't know what the something is, but the, the remarkable thing is it's not so much that we're singing; it's more that we are being sung, as if the song has come somehow moving through us and and through our collective voices is creating this in unspeakably beautiful music that is that is touches the soul and enriches and and so that for me that's such a powerful image because you know when we talk about where this stuff emerges from i think i think more in terms of being sung that that something moves through us and that is much larger than our concept can can ever begin um to comprehend, you know, I was I was listening to Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote the book Eat, Pray, Love, and she, she was on NPR. Yeah, and she was talking about this poet, and I forgive uh, forgive me his, I think maybe the poet's name was Ruth Stone, and Ruth was talking about um, when she was a child, she grew up on a farm, and she'd be out in the, in the fields playing, and she could sense a poem coming toward her, bounding over the landscape. Uh, and you know, it was almost like a, a galloping toward her. And when that, when she would sense that, her task was to get home as fast as she could so she could get a pencil and paper and write down the poem as it would move through her and she could watch it fading away. Sometimes mm-hmm. sometimes she didn't get home in fast enough. And so... Uh, she would watch the poem going off in the direct in the distance, moving away from her in search of another poet. Sometimes she would get home just in time to grab the poem by the tail end, and she would reel it in, and she would write it down. And but she would write it down, and it would be backwards. Oh wow! And so I think I, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert was saying, you know, we talk about people being a genius. She was offering up the idea that we have a genius, that, that something is working through us. And I think that's, I, I, I really resonate with that in, in so many ways. Oh, I, I totally concur. I, I can remember driving someplace and getting the first four lines of a poem and thinking, oh my gosh, I have to write this down. I can't stop driving. I, w- I tried <laughs> repeating it to myself over and over again so I could memorize it. And, and yeah. then the worst thing possible happened. The second four lines came. And, it, you know, at that point it was find a gas station, find something, find a pencil. If I, you can't do it. And, you know, I, I struggled. I don't write poetry consciously, but poetry does come through me from time to time. And, and when it does, it's beautiful. But, but it, it's, it's sort of like I kind of looked towards the sky and say, did you pay attention to where I am? You know. <laughs> Sometimes they just have no consideration, do they? I, I think they have the most bizarre sense of humor ever. And yes, they do. I am so, that makes me feel so good because to me, laughter is probably the, the most power, one of the most powerful tools we've got. And I, I know when I did, I served in the pulpit for five years and, um, the very first time I, I did a church service, I, I not only bored everybody to death, I took a nap. 
And <laughs> I I learned fast that when they invited me back the second time, and I thought they were crazy, I, I said to the congregation, I'm not going to do a sermon, but I will share with you some of the mistakes that I've made in life so that you can not make my mistakes, but make your own. And I found that that every time I... Those those and and my goal every time was to get the congregation laughing, because if I could get them laughing, I knew they would remember the story, and I knew they would apply it at the right time in the right way. Right, right. So and happily, I've made a lot of mistakes. So I was able to fill the five years with, with um, all of my mishaps and all of my aha moments, and it was. Yeah. It was a great pleasure to do. It really was. I had fun, um, which is, you know, and, and because I was an itinerant minister, I didn't have all of the other stuff I had to deal with. I just had to turn up on my Sunday and give a good, uh, and give a good sharing. So it was, it was the best of all possible worlds. So, so you have this project, and... It's, yeah. Is it going to be a documentary? Is it, what's this, do you know oh, what form uh, well, it's going to take? Actually, uh, it's going to be a book. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm writing the book right now, and also I've got a um, production company that has contacted me. Again, this had nothing to do with me. It just came out of the blue, and they wanted to produce this workshop that, that I'm doing. So I think in the next couple of weeks or so, we'll start work on that and uh, with that workshop, uh, I'll also be working with the Monroe Institute and incorporating some and creating some sound exercises for that. Um, but the, you know, the, the the key here, though, is is one of the things I b- began to find out is as I've moved through this strange journey of spirituality is that so often in the in the brain, you know, we want to categorize things that are you know useful or not useful acceptable not acceptable good versus evil etc but when you move into the mystical tradition and those waters it's often said that all is one you know there is no division and so one of the things i began to wrestle with with was this whole concept of Money and how and how does that relate to the spiritual quest and how does how do you begin to integrate that because you know I think that's a that's such a key question on some the mind of so many people who enter into this and are driven by the spiritual quest is this very pesky need to still be able to maintain the body feed it and clothe mm-hmm. it and shelter it and. And so there are lots of different ways that people have tried to approach that. Um, you know, I mean, there's lots of advice around there that about, you know, the law of attraction and the secret and um, <laughs> vision boards and, you know, lots of New Age stuff. And there's stuff within the Christian world. You know, they talk about the gospel of prosperity and that Jesus wants you to be rich, which is pretty much BS. Um, mm-hmm. And... So I, I kept thinking, you know, there must be some other way that we're missing here that um, this is all connected. And so those those four categories, time, money, dreaming, and enlightenment, for me, they had to form some kind of a whole. And, and that was what really drove me. 
but we live in a society that sees them a great chasm. On the one hand, there's time and money that we're told that money is time and time is money. And yeah. and that's all about working with the physical body and maintaining its needs. And then on the other end are issues like dreaming and enlightenment. And uh, putting those two those two sides together is a very, very difficult thing. But I began to get an inkling into that. Um, you may remember that when I was talking about moving into the heart and the dream world opening up, that for me it became much more about establishing an ongoing relationship with the dream and the dream figures rather than interpretation. And so let me just kind of give you an example of what I mean uh, and some of its implications. Okay. Uh, early on I had what I, one of those th- dreams that I call the big dream. Um, up to that point I'd been re- sort of playing with this idea of the heart and Think, began to think of the heart as an alchemical entity. In other words, something that could bring transformation. You remember the alchemists were the old guys in the pointy hats that were supposedly after uh, questing after changing lead and base elements into gold. But really, mm-hmm. they were doing that to some extent, but they were also interested in uh, the transformation uh, of the human soul into higher qualities. So there was a metaphorical aspect to their work when they were talking about gold and lead and whatnot. So I began to think of the heart. Well, maybe the heart has alchemical properties. And so um, I, I went, in, this dream came to me, and it was just absolutely overpowering. And in the dream, um, my wife Jackie and I are supposed to go to this uh, place, and, and we were supposed to steal this secret document. And, you know, of course, in the dream, you don't ever question that stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, let's, let's go do that. Sure. <laughs> Sounds like a good idea. <laughs> so we go to this house. It's an old Victorian house, and, and it's actually a, uh, a classroom setting. With It's like uh, almost like a chemistry lab, but up in front, the, the two instructors are stirring liquid in this coffin, and every once in a while, this human skeleton comes up and then it recedes back into the liquid and as they're stirring it keeps coming back and forth and up and down. And I realized immediately that this is a very profound thing because in this class they're talking about issues of life and death and somehow they know how to navigate that. And So I'm really interested in that. Not I'm not at all scared or offended by what they're doing because this is learning. Mm-hmm. But we remember our mission so we go to the back of the class and we're rifling through these documents and hoping nobody's going to see us when all of a sudden one of the instructors comes up and he says, would you like a bag for that after we found the document we were looking for? As if he knew all along why we were there and what we were doing. He said, no, 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 we don't need a bag. And we scurry out of the classroom and we go into this courtyard. Standing in the courtyard is a woman. And the minute I lay eyes on her, I, I just gasped and I said, I know you, because it was a knowing that I've known this woman through lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, and now we are getting together yet again. So I said, I, I know you. And she, and she puts her hands on her hips and she said, you say that every time we get together, almost impatiently. <laughs> so, uh, But it was such a profound meeting that I, that I knew 
that this was something at the deepest soul level. And so when I woke up from the dream, I was completely overwhelmed uh, by it. And I knew that I had to nurture this relationship with this woman, come hell or high water, no matter what. And so when I would go into the heart at night and when I would go into the heart at, in the morning, I would invite, invite her into that space. And in the morning, it turns out that she was a crackerjack uh, insight. It gave me tremendous insights into the dreams that I would have. So she would point out things that I didn't realize. Uh, she would talk about what this meant for me. And, and she was always spot on. And it was always bing, 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 no hesitation. And I began to realize that this is this is a really powerful figure. Well, later on, uh, I could I didn't really know what her name was, so I gave her a fake name. And, and one day she's in the middle of talking about this dream, and all of a sudden she stops and she says, by the way, my name is not what the name you gave me, but it's Gwendolyn. You might want to look it up. <laughs> okay, so I when I got up from the bed, I went to the computer and looked up the name Gwendolyn, it turns out that Gwendolyn was the wife of Merlin the Magician, who was the consummate alchemist. Mm-hmm. So remember I'd been talking about the heart, thinking about the heart as an element of alchemy. In the dream, I go to a school of alchemy. I meet a woman there whose name I do not know. She gives me that name in my meditation time with her. I go into the waking world to look it up and realize that she's the wife of the... Con- she's not only the mistress of the school of alchemy, she's also the wife of Merlin the magician, the, the consummate alchemist. So what's happening now is all of these different worlds are starting to come together mm-hmm. and interpenetrate in ways that I never thought... I never even considered before. So now the heart's really doing a great job of establishing relationships because it's bringing together these ordinarily disparate worlds into a whole that are mutually reinforcing. And so these different aspects of my life are not separate anymore, but they are all one. Does that make sense? Wow. It does. And I think one thing that, that I should have mentioned way at the beginning is that throughout, through this entire process, you've had a wife that has been extraordinarily not only supportive, but has, has made the journey with you in her own way. Yes, yes. And um, again, had that been up to me, I would have screwed it up in a, a thousand <laughs> different ways. But but Probably. the powers that be knew that I needed somebody who was extraordinarily forgiving and wise and insightful, and so they hooked me up with Jackie. Well, She's been great. She She has definitely balanced you out in a lot of ways. <laughs> Absolutely. She and, and my children both have brought so <laughs> so much to my world that I can't even begin to describe it. I can certainly understand that. Um but so 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 you've got this project now. Um and and you know I understand the concept of taking the physical and the spiritual and finding a bridge to to connect the two. And that makes a great deal of sense because so many of us, um, you know, actually do need to to have clothing and food and, and shelter. Um, I've always 
personally believe that that if if I was moving in the right direction appropriately, that that the universe would always make sure I was cared for. Not rich, but cared for. Um, I've always found that people that have an excessive amount of money focus so much on not losing their money that they lose sight of where they're supposed to be going. So so I've never had that problem. (laughs) Well, that mirrors in some regard my own perspective on it, too. Uh, my dad was always a person who was very concerned about money and very anxious about it and always looking to save every penny he possibly could. And it just seemed to me like it was kind of a, a lot of wasted e- effort. And so he and I often did not see eye to eye about much of anything. And and so in some ways, uh, yeah, like you, I've, I've, I've always had enough, but there's also a part of me that's been sort of allergic to money. Mm-hmm. And so that it kind of moves moves through my fingers a little too quickly. Um, and so in some ways it's really bizarre that I should be talking about issues of, that involve money. But my journey has taken me in, in this direction. Um, so to offer up another story in that regard, when I moved into this dream world and uh, it wasn't Gwendolyn wasn't the only figure that emerged for me. Another one that that came to the fore in a dream was a, a, an older gentleman who was um, very adept at money. He was kind of like a CEO type of a large corporation in his, when he was alive and, or in this world. And when I met him in the dream, we kind of hit it off, and uh, and so. In the morning when I went into the heart before I got out of bed and went back into the dream, I continued the relationship. Remember, it's not about interpretation. It's about more about relationship. Mm-hmm. And in this relationship that I continued with him, um, I finally said to him, you know, uh, I'm really not very good at this money stuff. It It doesn't really interest me, and even when I try to do it, you know, it doesn't work out all that well, and um, you know, I lose interest pretty quickly. And uh, but you really, you really know about money. And he said, "Yeah, I really do." I said, "Would you mind taking over that aspect of my life for me?" He said, "Sure, I'd be glad to." I said, "Well, that's hey, that's great. It's done. It's solved. That's it." And um, you might, you're probably not going to believe this, but from that point on, money just started showing up mm-hmm. and in different ways that were unexpected. You know, they were tax returns, they were inheritances, they were bonuses, they were my wife got a job that more than doubled her pay. And, you know, it's just like I, I'd go to the mailbox and checks would appear out of, almost out of nowhere. And it was it was amusing and it was so amusing that I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to keep a running total here to see – where this is going, you know, because this this guy from my dream world, his name was Alfred, which might, which by the way means magical counselor. Uh huh. He seems to be doing a pretty good job, and I stopped keeping track when the total came to a half million dollars. Oh so, my gosh! Which is which is to say, it's not the money that's important. What's important is realizing that we have at our fingertips 
in these relationships that can come to us through our dream world, a whole cadre of advisors and counselors and wisdom and insight that is so much more uh, complete than anything that we can manufacture on our own with our small brain. Well, well, yeah, but but that's part of that is because they aren't part of this reality. They are part of a greater reality that 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 we just haven't stretched into. So that's your way of stretching into it. Right, right. But I think it begins again began with me, for me when I made that movement from the brain to the heart. You know, because in our culture we are so fixated on the brain. You know, our education system is is thoroughly grounded in in the brain. Our our medical models is and our model of consciousness is, is everything originates in the brain. We mm-hmm. don't even acknowledge the possibility that the heart has a wisdom of its own. Unlike ancient cultures, where the, for them it was the heart center that was the the essence of who we are. And so I think what's happened in our culture is that we've gotten to the point where we have placed so much emphasis on the brain and the of course the brain is identified with the body and the mm-hmm. body is this individual package that is moving through space that is separate from the space around us so there's a sense of isolation and individuality that, <laughs> that is drummed into us in the western world from the time that we are born almost and so we have we have put this aspect of our being what often people call the ego, I, I like to call it the narrative self. Okay. And we've put it, in a, put it in a position of having to take on far more than it was ever equipped to do. So, uh, you know, for me, there's a, there is a, there is a, a purpose for our individuality, and there's something of immense value in that, and, and that is that as individuals, we have a completely unique perspective on the universe that cannot be duplicated in any other way by any, anybody else, and that's infinitely valuable. But the other aspects of you know, caring for our daily life and, you know, f- following our passion and our, our vision and um, becoming complete beings and working in concert with the world has to come from a different place than the brain. And for me, that, that starts to originate with the heart. And it's when we do that that we start to form relationships where whereas the brain would divide and conquer. And that's, to me, critically important as we move forward as a species. Well, I would, I would agree with you. I, I, I think the, the concept of the, the heart really being the bridge between the two makes a great deal of sense. Um, but people are going to ask you, and I'm sure that I would hope, you know, you say you put your consciousness in your heart. Is that through meditation? Is that through visualization? How do you, how do you move your consciousness? Well, uh, for me, the first step in that is, um, well, depending on how technical you want to get, but let's just say the first step in that is is relaxation. Okay. So one of the things that that keeps us in our head is the tension that, that we that we have in our body, and that keeps us in that as long as we're aware of that body as it, uh, with all of its hurts and bruises and past memories that are kept in the tissues of our body, and as long as we're identified with that, we're always going to be identified with the brain because the brain identifies as the body for most people. Mm-hmm. So 
so relaxation is the first thing. And in that relaxation, there's a, not only a letting go of the tension in the muscles, but there's also a lowering of the boundaries so that uh, in the lowering of those boundaries, we begin to let go of that sense of isolation and individuality to some extent. So relaxation and then uh there's a, a process of gently, very gently breathing into the heart. It's not really air that you're breathing in, but it's more a sense of light or it's a sense of energy or it's a sense of intention. It can be different for different people. And so when that happens, you can begin to have a sensation or um, you can begin to even sense or see something happening at that heart center as you're moving with intention, breathing into that very, very gently. For some people, it's a warmth. Some people, it's a light. Some people, it's a sense of joy. You know, it could be different for different people. But the idea as you're breathing in is, is you're also bringing your attention to that place. And then uh, once you become aware of that, then you can begin to expand that center outward, so that it begins to um, maybe, first of all, be as large as your rib cage, and then you can expand it again so it's encompassing your whole whole body. You can expand it so it's even encompassing your community or the world or the solar system or whatever. But then you bring that, as you're bringing that back and making it smaller, you now are inside that space, right? So, for mm-hmm. instance, when that heart space is encompassing the body, the essence of you is inside that heart space. And then when you shrink it down to the size of the rib cage, you maintain that essence of you as being still within that space. And then when you shrink it down to maybe the size of a softball or something, the essence of you, of you is still within that space. So what you're doing now is creating... what has been known as the sacred space of the heart. It has been a term that different traditions have used throughout uh, antiquity. So it's this sacred space of the heart that then, once you're inside of that, becomes the doorway to all these different relationships that I've talked about. You use use a term in in some of your outline that that I found fascinating, and it's not one that I have... um, actually heard before you speak of the radiant self Mm, yeah and yeah um that's a great that's a great question by the way thank you for asking it i'm very very grateful for you to ask that when i fell off the roof i encountered a being of light and um at that time, because I was in the Christian tradition, I kind of associated with Jesus, although the, he, it never used that term. But there was a deep, deep connection, and, and as I was standing in front of this being of light and we're conversing without words, there was a sense of communion that transcended time, as if, you know, we had been doing, had this connection for all of eternity. As time went on, I began to wonder about that light and what it was, and I began to think, you know what, I'm not sure it was Jesus. You know, I don't know what it was, but I'm not just not sure what that is. 
And then I ran across uh, a lot of material uh, around uh, near-death experiences. Um, one of the first books in that area was Life After Life by Dr. Raymond Moody, and he laid out, I think it was, maybe 15 different different aspects of, of uh, near-death experience. One of them, and not, not everybody who had a near-death experience experienced all 15 of those, but most of them experienced some of those 15. One that was uh, listed was this encounter with this being of light, and in the presence of that being of light, uh, the life review. In other words, he would go back <clears throat> and... <clears throat> Excuse me. The different aspects of your life would would be replayed in stunning detail, uh, but you would often have a different perspective on it. You wouldn't necessarily be you in that. You might be the person who was uh, experiencing what you were doing. So it's a very profound way of of looking at the different impacts that uh, your life had on others, and so it was a great learning experience as well. But it was always done in this very loving, non-judgmental context. Um, so I, because I had the experience of encountering that being light, of light myself and I also experienced it at another point I began to wonder what this what this was and gradually I began to think that, that this is probably the part of us it's not some alien being it's not some God-like figure it's not Jesus it's me it's each one of us as we move beyond the confines of the physical body through death. And what we're doing is we're actually reconnecting with that aspect of ourselves, and we're bringing the memories with us, which is the the stuff of the life review. And the, the thing that was is so stunning to me when I consider this is that because this being is able to reproduce all these events from our past, and in some cases able to produce events in our future if we survive the near-death experience, it becomes evident that this part of ourselves is something that lives outside of time. And that's what I call the radiant self. It's, it seems to be constituted of light. It seems to live outside of time. And it, it seems to be able to have a an overview of our life that we are not privy to while we're in the body, which means that it, if we connect with it, it could be an enormously important and powerful aspect uh, to inform and enhance our lives in the body. If we're, mm -hmm. we can find, if we can make that connection, and, and again, drawing on my past as a Presbyterian pastor, I, I'm convinced that this is what Jesus was talking about when he would say, I and the Father are one. I, I think his term for that radiant self was the Father. Ah. And so... I, I, call, I call that radiant self the etheric body. It, it, yes. I, I, I was actually trying to stay away from terms because, you know, as soon as you turn... Common terms, because as soon as you choose one, somebody's got another term. So I was trying to stay with something that was more generic. Oh, yeah, no, I, but, I I think it's a it's a wonderful term, and and now that you've explained it, it's it's exactly what I understand exactly what you're talking about. Well, good, you'd you'd be the first. <laughs> 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 but you know, Jesus Jesus 
made a comment. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham was yeah. somebody who lived, you know, centuries before him. Yeah. And and so he he in the, he's saying, I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. So to me, he's when he's talking about this connection to what he called the Father, it's evidence that this Father lives outside of time. And if he's identifying with it, he's actually living outside of time. And therefore, that's why he can say, before Abraham was, I am. Mm-hmm. So that's where the issue of time then starts to get very interesting in this whole uh, you know, we've talked about money, and we've talked about dreaming, but time, I think, is something very different from what we ordinarily conceive. Uh, and that's a whole other discussion. How are we doing on time, speaking of which? You've got like 19 minutes. Okay. Well, before I go into that, I should ask you if you have other questions that you'd rather talk about. No, I, I want to go wherever you want to go. All right. So, throughout my many times in my life, I've had the experience of getting inklings of the future, and I think most people do. Sure. Um, you know, there's intuition, uh, there's premonition. Some people have visions. Some people have insights, gut feelings, deja vu. You know, there's many different ways in which we access the future, but we don't allow ourselves to admit that. Because we're convinced that time only moves in one direction. You know, it's like we're standing in a stream of, of time and we look ahead and this future is coming toward us, it passes through us, and then the past is behind us. And so we can't really access the future, but we can access the past through memories and, and, and we can lesson learn, lessons learned, etc. But I was reading a book uh, not too long ago by Robert Sardello called Love in the Soul. And in that book, he makes what for me was just a really startling uh, comment. He says that uh, throughout most of history, time has moved in that one direction. And so we could look to the past to get lessons to help us move into the future because really society didn't change very much from one generation to the next. So the elders had wisdom that was applicable to the future of, of their children and their grandchildren, so the elders were revealed. And so mostly society was built on this idea of tradition, and when you think about it, our, our law system is always ba- is based on precedent. Uh, religion is based on the the writings of old and traditions of old and culture is based on customs, et cetera, that come from the past. And that was the glue that held society together. But uh, something happened as, as it, it almost seemed like time started to speed up in a way and changes were happening so fast that time was getting wobbly. And then he says that in with the advent of the atomic bomb, the, the fabric of time was actually shredded. I mean, think about what he's saying there. He's, he's saying that something dramatically different has happened in our relationship to time. He doesn't explain why that was, but I think it maybe it might be because um, for the first time we were no longer assured that there was going to be a future. You know, yeah. Human history could come to an end. 
He says uh, that there's a second stream of time flowing in the opposite direction that flows from the past, goes through us, and moves toward the future. And uh, we experience the, this second flow of time in the opposite direction through the ways that I explained before, intuition and, and uh, vision, uh, deja vu, and different different ways, premonitions, knowings, uh, and so that we actually do have the ability and the capacity, if we develop it, to begin to form a relationship with the future. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's what we really have to do as a society, because now we're in a place where the world is changing through technology so fast and so dramatically that the lessons of the past are no longer applicable, applicable to the future. And therefore, we have to form a relationship with the future so that we can have some way of navigating this tremendous chaos around us. And I, I think he's really right about that. No, I would so, tend to agree. So when we're looking at the issue of the radiant body that stands outside of time, and forming a relationship with that, that's essential for us to begin to navigate as a future from that, uh, as a species from that perspective. And I think that it's the heart that can begin to form a relationship with our future selves and also with this radiant essence that lives outside of time to, to give us a um, really amazing way to uh, gain insight into that which has been hidden to us in the past. Well, I think one of the for me, one of the most encouraging things that I have learned, felt, understood, <clears throat> not sure which is the most appropriate term, is that that radiant body will survive and go on even if the species does not. So that there is an essence of us that will continue through time that may not be in, in, in a homo sapien form but it will go on. Right, right. Some form of consciousness will exist. Um, but it really would be nice to, um, to kind oh, of I'd continue like to this the... experiment oh, yeah. on Earth, though, if we can. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you, you when you go back through science, I mean, there have been <clears throat> four or five mass destruction events mm-hmm. that have already hit the planet. Right. So... Um, and we seem to, each time, come back. So I would say that the human species, the human race, is destined to move forward, whether it's this time or the next time. It's, it's destined to evolve and grow and expand into that consciousness. And, and certainly, there are more people today making contact with that radiant essence of themselves than than I believe ever before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I think and I, I think that this is what we're talking about is really crucial. You know, we're kind of at a at a point of decision here. Are we going to uh, maintain the old ways and the old perspectives that are largely based on fear and separation and isolation and suspicion, or are we going to open up to something new? And uh, I think that's what we're be- being called to do right now is to that that something new that we couldn't even imagine before is beginning to take form. Well, and, and it's important, too, for everybody to realize that we really are one. We aren't separate. Exactly. We're all one. Exactly. exactly. 
and you know it's 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 not black white green and blue it's it's one species it's one consciousness and you know it, it's one consciousness at sometimes at war within itself but but hopefully we are going to come to a time where where there is peace and love you don't have to like everybody but love is something that is it transcends differences always and I do feel that that we are moving in that direction. I'd like to say I'd see it in my lifetime, this or another. Um, I'm just way too curious and having way too much fun. So if I don't make it this lifetime, I'm, I'm absolutely coming back again because I want to be there when it all comes together because I think it will be a magic. And I think I think you, what you're saying is 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 important because I think that that was one of the um, uh, issues I think of the, uh, the New Age movement was that everybody was so convinced that this is the last time they're going to be there. I'm going to do everything I can to get out of this world, and and you know I'm never going to repeat. I'm not coming back, and never realizing that not only are we here for a reason and that we're learning and that this earth school is a profoundly life-changing aspect of being, but that we also have a part to play in relationship to the earth and also in relation by, by extension to the cosmos. And um, we have to begin to see the earth as a living being. And, you know, people have talked about that, but, not just to think about that intellectually, but to actually experience it is 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 tremendously important. Oh gosh, and, yeah. And by extension, as I say, uh, opening up to not just other larger dimensions of this cosmos, but but larger dimensions of interdimensional experience too. Oh, exactly. I when when people say I'm not coming back and. I've I've paid I've learned all my lessons I paid all my dues I don't have to come back and I there was a time where I would argue with them and um, I don't anymore I I tell them that they are they are absolutely right that this personality is not going to come back again but the spirit may well have another idea exactly yeah yeah right I mean there's there's so much to learn. Um, and, and, and you know, when people tell me they've learned it all, I, you know, look at them and say, well, if you know it all, you shouldn't be here. <laughs> you know, you, you, did you miss the last train? Uh, yeah. That's right. No, it's, it's, as human beings, we are capable of so much. And the thought that, that you know, we, we're not even utilizing all of the DNA we've got. And, and you know, you're... Your journey into consciousness is is really very important in, in unlocking some of those those strands that that we carry within us. And I do think we have the capacity to understand so much more. It's just a matter of being able to put the physical reality to to a point to a side and and giving the spiritual its equal time. Yep. And and so often. Um, in, in our day-to-day lives, most people don't give the spirit the same amount of attention they give the physical reality. Yeah, I think that's that's where um, this work that I've been doing has been really instructive to me. And I say 
this work that I've been doing as if I've been doing it. And it's been doing me probably more than anything else. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, it, it, it's just, it's be, it, one of the things that has surprised me is, is how delightful it has been. Uh, it always used to be, it'd be so difficult for me to meditate. It was arduous. It was, you know, it was it was not fun, and that was one of the things I appreciate appreciated about the Monroe Institute was that it gave me a tool where a, a person who found it so difficult to meditate could actually begin to do it with this tool. But entering into the heart, I, I found to be so delicious and so delightful that I look forward to it each night when I go to bed. And I look forward to it each morning when I wake up. And so it 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 has been a really painless way to integrate this aspect into my life that I've never been able to do before. Um, and that's been, uh, for me, quite life-changing. Oh, I can imagine. Um, we are we are getting close to the end, and if people want to learn more about you or your work, how do they connect with you? They can't. <laughs> <laughs> they can read your book. Yeah, um, I, I'm sorry to say that uh, the book right now is about the only thing that I have out there that people can get their hands around, and, and that's available on Amazon. It's called A Spiritual right. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe. Um, soon, I hope, when I say soon, I hope within the next six months or so, I will have this online course that will incorporate uh, exercises that I've done with the Monroe Institute, but it will also be videos of teaching. So, uh, so I've got the book and this workshop that should be available the book, hopefully within the next year, probably I'm, I'm even hoping it'll be much less than that. Uh, both by the same name, same name called Time, Money, Dreaming, and Enlightenment. Um, you, I'm I'm a little bit uh, afraid to give out my email address because I'm afraid I might get more responses than I can. Can okay. Well, handle. let's let's put it this way: if anybody who hears this show, and it will be on. Google and YouTube and all of those different places by morning. If anyone is interested in contacting Paul, feel free to to send um, whatever you'd like to send to him to me at BarbaraDeLong at gmail.com, and I will forward it to him. Okay, that would be great. That would be great. And I will do my best uh, to get back to people. I I have to confess I may uh, find that a little difficult right now because we're in the process of moving, uh, selling our home and moving to a new new location. So I'm going to be a little bit um, preoccupied as, in the time coming up. But I will I will give it my best. All right? <laughs> okay. And, and I will look forward to the, the workshop because it looks like it's something that, that – um, and if it's going to be online, it's it, it looks like it's something I definitely would be interested in myself. So, <clears throat> excuse me, my voice is going here. Um, okay. You know, it, it's they tell me I have allergies to cats, and I have three cats, so I refuse to believe there's an allergy. I'm going to blame it on pollen. Um, <laughs> yeah. I refuse to be. I will not be allergic to cats. I'm sorry. Um, so, so I will. I will keep in touch with you and I will make sure Perfect. that um, that once 
you're up and running on this other, I will drag you back in and and I would imagine there will be a website by then. Oh, I I don't know. I, I suspect there will be. I'm hoping that the producers are going to ha- actually. I think they're going to handle all that. They will. They will be the ones that because the the course will be on their website, and they then uh, will help me to communicate with the, the the people. So even though the course itself will be recorded, I will still be answering questions that people have during as the the course progresses so there'll be lots of time and opportunity to communicate at the, that time too. But it's, most it of all, I, so I, I want people to know that we're going to have fun. Well, the, yes. <laughs> I think that's the you know to me joy and and laughter and light are what take you into those other realms as well. It's just another way of getting there. And right. um right. the 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 in the the opening up of those those avenues of expression and the creativity that is there is so exciting. And you know the 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 etheric you or the cosmic you or whatever you want to call it does does send subtle messages to us. And and the more you look, the more you listen, the more you make yourself available to the insight that is being shared. The richer your life is. It goes from black and white to technicolor in a heartbeat. Certainly does. Certainly does. Thank you for putting it that way, and thank you for having me on your show. Oh, it's been a delight. I thank you so very much. I really look forward to getting you back again and talking about your other projects. And um, and again, if anybody wants to send a message to Paul, you can send it to me at Barbara DeLong at gmail dot com, and I will forward it to him because he's going to be anonymous <laughs> for a little while, anyway. <laughs> Thanks so much again, Paul. It's such a delight having you. you. Good Good night, night, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. So good night, everybody. Thanks for being here. We'll put this up on YouTube, and um, it'll be on my website as well, and in lots of other places that I don't even know. So keep in touch next Monday night, and maybe even in between someplace. You'll never know where I pop up. Good night now.